Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. when I I just feel like um, we just got to be honest with each other. <clears throat> so uh, I read this headline uh, last night that more than a quarter of Americans, so 28%, up from 9% in 2019, that's, a, that's an almost 20% spike year over year. The um, Journal of American uh, Medicine is reporting that we now have 28% of the American population reporting depression symptoms. Um, and so uh, economic stress is apparently leading the list of causes. And substance abuse leads the list of coping strategies, along with suicide ideation. And so I want to pause and um, and have a very sober conversation here for just a moment before Matt Hawkins comes on and we talk about some life-related uh, headlines. Um, and I just want to say we know a better way. And yes, there is cause for uh, depression. I get that. I get that, that life is full of stressors. I get that. God has got this. And God has got us in the midst of it. Whatever the this is right now, you know, the this is COVID collectively, but I recognize that in each one of our own lives, those stresses are um, many fold, I will say. We got lots of stressors. So the question is not whether or not life is full of stress, but how we handle it. And the question is not how many stressors we have. Um, and now I share this quick litany with you, not in any way for you to feel sorry for me, because that's not what this is about um, in terms of sharing our stress. But let me just say that uh, Jim and I just celebrated our, I think, ninth anniversary in May. We were married in May of 2011. His son, Jonathan, was deployed in Afghanistan in an infantry marine expeditionary unit at the time. He returned home with a purple heart and a soul wound. Uh, We have graduated uh, one from high school, two from college. We've had two weddings. We've walked with our family through childhood leukemia, which threatened to take the life of one of our very precious family members, My mom had a heart attack, as you know, and a triple bypass. Uh, My husband sold a business, launched another business. We both wrote and published books. Each of us has buried a best friend. Uh, Both of them were in their 50s. Um, I've changed careers twice, and both times I had to fire a number of people who I love. I had a fourth nerve palsy that resulted in double vision. Now, remind you, let me just remind you, all of this is since 2011 when we got married. Now, God miraculously healed that uh, fourth nerve palsy, for which I'm very grateful, since 2014, we've also been mired in a custody battle, uh, uh, which keeps us in court frequently. Um, and it creates stress and it's costly in every way the word could be used. Uh, God has blessed us with five grandkids along the way uh, and counting. Um, we have a number of foster care grandkids as well. 
Um, one of our grandchildren, our youngest, uh, is autistic. And you already know about Matthew, who is um, our youngest child at home. He turns 15 in October. During uh, the course of our marriage, he's had a number of invasive cranial surgeries as a part of having been born with Apert syndrome. We have spent untold nights in the pediatric ICU at Vanderbilt Hospital. We have learned to do school in more ways than I care to count. Uh, And let's see, a 60-ton tree fell last year just before Thanksgiving on my little house in the mountains, which is like my go-to soul place, and it's only just now being rebuilt. So stressors, yeah, yeah, stressors, yeah, we've got them. But we don't count them like I just did. We count our blessings, not our challenges. We trust God and we trust each other and we... And we rely on our uh, family and our extended family and the resources that are available to us through our local church. And we ask for help from others and professionals when we need it. Life is hard. God is good. Life is hard. God is good. Life is hard. God is good. Where do you put the emphasis? On which one of those realities do you put your first thought and your last thought? And which one of those gets your ultimate attention? I get it that people are struggling. I get it that you're struggling. Get help. Talk to someone. You're only alone if you allow yourself to be. There is no shame in acknowledging that life is hard. There's also great glory in acknowledging that God is good. So in addition to your doctor, talk to your pastor. In addition to uh, having some woe is me time, Spend some time investing yourself in helping someone who is struggling and is stressed in, uh, in significant ways as well. All right. All that idle time, <clears throat> don't just spend it lamenting toward God. Put it to good use in serving someone else. Let me just tell you, that will uh, change the way the stress affects you. All right. Uh, Matt Hawkins is waiting in the wings. He and I have a number of headlines to talk about. We'll be right back. Matthew Hawkins is a public theologian, former policy director for the ERLC in Washington, D.C. He tweets at M.T. Hawk. You can also find him at MatthewTHawkins.com. Hey, welcome back, man. Good morning, Carmen. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me back. Happy Friday. Yeah. Happy Friday. Happy uh, Labor Day weekend. Thank you. You got to preaching a minute ago. I know, but don't say that because I'm a girl and we're not allowed to do that. So there you go. Okay. um, Well, I know. Now they're going to all at me. Good good words. Good, Thank good, you. Good words this morning. Thank you. Okay, let's um, let's talk about the Hyde Amendment. Uh, there will be yes, people listening right now who n- think they know something about it, um, and some who recognize that it is under imminent threat. Talk with us about yeah. the Hyde Amendment and why uh, we ought, why this election matters in relationship to it. Sure. We'll, uh, I, I try to avoid this usually, um, but how about we, we first do some kind of rank political punditry, and then we'll talk about uh, ca- casting a vision for the future of pro-life politics. How about that? Go, go right ahead. <laughs> um, so first, the history. Uh, quickly, the Hyde Amendment, uh, that is what we refer to, is now a historic, uh, what I call a scrimmage line at the federal level between uh, the pro life folks and the pro-choice folks. Uh, basically, you had the Supreme Court 
in the 70s rule uh, that um, abortion uh, was right for women um, and that therefore uh, there couldn't you couldn't restrict it and you couldn't stop it. And the question then becomes when we live in a context where you have government funding for medical care, namely Medicaid, um, it does Medicaid cover abortion? And uh, as far back as 1976, Congress decided that it was uh, not appropriate for the federal government to force pro-life folks uh, to pay for abortion through their tax dollars. Uh, so we're talking about federal tax dollars used for abortion funneled through uh, predominantly Medicaid, uh, but basically any uh, health care program that the government uh, may pay for. And what's unique about the Hyde Amendment is – like a lot of things in federal government, um, it has to be renewed every year. So Medicaid basically is an annual reauthorization. So in some sense, it's always an, it's always an eminent threat um, because we have to renew this thing every year. It's never been what they call codified uh, permanently. Um, and so because Medicaid uh, is uh, reauthorized annually. Uh, this has kind of been a traditional uh, standoff. And so there's all, it's always been under threat because it always expires. And so Congress has to do the work to reauthorize it all the time. And so on the one hand, it's under threat now more because prominent politicians, which we'll get into in a second, uh, have come out and basically said and been more vocal uh, in recent weeks and the past year about stopping with the Hyde Amendment. So that brings us to our rank political punditry. Uh, last year, uh, around May or June, uh, Joe Biden rescinded as he was uh, entering the uh, then Democrat primary, rescinded his historic commitment to the Hyde Amendment. So this is, again, a, a bill that goes back to the 70s, and, and Biden's been part of Congress uh, for many, many, many years. Uh, he Something that he was uh, supportive of. Uh, he rescinded that support uh, last year as he entered the Democratic uh, primary race. And then you have uh, within the past week, Nancy Pelosi, uh, speaker, current Speaker of the House, announced that next year uh, that they would m make efforts to rescind the Hyde Amendment. Uh, so you have Joe Biden, who's regardless now of who's president. elected, like she's right, committed to this, no matter who's in the White House. Right. Um, yeah. Which is which is unique because naturally uh, I would expect I would I would hope that a Republican president would not sign such a thing. Um, so on the one hand, it's always under eminent threat. It appears to be under more threat now, rhetorically speaking, at least. Um, and these measures originate in the House. However, uh, it's unlikely even even given the 2020 election that the Senate um, that, that, that such a measure, uh, without the Hyde amendment would pass the Senate. Uh, they would probably need 60 votes, which they don't have, even if Democrats won a majority, um, in, in the Senate, uh, this time around. So on the one hand, yeah, it's a pretty terrible move. Uh, like I said, it's a, it's the scrimmage line, um, for, uh, for, uh, the, the abortion politics in Congress. And so you have a situation where Democrats at least, are motivated enough to try to make ways to cross that scrimmage line, uh, which frankly is more than I can say about the Republican Party of the last few years when they had unified government and a president with a signature 
they had the opportunity to do things, modify, hide, and make it permanent or defund Planned Parenthood, uh, which they did not do. So that's where I want to we'll pivot to the next part of our conversation, uh, maybe in the next segment, is talking about a vision uh, for the future of pro-life politics. Because if we only talk about pro-life politics and the high, things like the Hyde Amendment during the election year, um, that only gets us so far. It might help put the right people in place theoretically, uh, but as we have seen, uh, we, we don't have a lot of uh, strength for follow-through at the federal level even within the Republican Party. So that's my rank punditry. Uh, for All right, no, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's take a very brief break. And when we come back, I'd love for you to cast a vision for the future of pro-life politics. That would be great. Let's do that. Sounds good. Yeah. All right, Thank we're going to take a very brief break. When we come back, uh, Matt Hawkins is going to cast a vision for the future of pro-life politics. So get your, uh, get your note-taking materials out. We'll be right back. <laughs> All right, the mic is hot, uh, and Matt Hawkins is now on the hot mic to cast a vision for the future of pro-life politics. Go! <laughs> Thanks, Carvin. Well, uh, previously we kind of established uh, that the Hyde Amendment is once again uh, under under threat, as it is every year. Uh, more so now, rhetorically speaking, uh, because uh, Biden has withdrawn his support, and Speaker of the House Pelosi promises to attempt to uh, uh, stop uh, passing that piece of legislation uh, next year. Uh, the the reality is, I think it's unlikely. Uh, for that to six su- that effort to succeed, but nevertheless, it is evidence of the Democratic Party at the national level um, trying to breach the scrimmage line, the his- a historic scrimmage line uh, that's been in place since the '70s between pro-life and pro-choice uh, advocates. Um, now, I would like to see that scrimmage line breached, but I would like to see it scrim- uh, breached in the opposite direction, uh, if I can take our football metaphor uh, a little further. Um, so, and we also discussed that uh, we've witnessed uh, when the Republicans were in charge for two years with a Republican president, they failed to make any legislative permanent difference when they had the opportunity. They chose to prioritize other things. We have also witnessed when the Republican Party was willing to uh, shut down the government or threaten to shut down government over things like uh, border security and immigration. Uh, they do not seem to have that resolve, frankly, uh, when it comes to the pro-life issues. So what do we do with that? Do we throw our hands up in the air? Do we disengage from politics? Uh, I say no, um, but regardless of how we vote this fall, I'd like to talk about what we do uh, after this election uh, to maybe uh, cast a little different vision uh, for, for pro-life politics for the, for the case of the unborn at the federal level uh, in Congress in particular. Um, we've seen better results at the state level. Um, we've seen virtually no movement at the federal level legislatively, um, although folks at Health and Human Services, which is an executive branch agency, uh, and uh, are some really great folks right now under this administration. Um, but uh, And we have uh, some good judicial appointments. Um, but if we're wanting to make some permanent changes legislatively, we got to do some things different. Uh, and so one of the things is trying to think, how do we keep Republicans in Congress accountable for delivering on their promises that they give us during an election year? Um, we, as a pro-life community, failed to keep them accountable from uh, 2018, or I'm sorry, from 
2017 and, and 2018. Uh, so we got to think about how much leverage we actually have and make a bigger stink about it uh, when possible and really challenge Republicans to prioritize this issue in a way that they haven't uh, in recent years, although they continue to win a lot of elections um, with, with that. So I think we need to figure out a way within that party uh, uh, to how to keep them accountable um, and really, you know, put their money where their mouth is, so to speak. Um, when we're faced with the kind of a, what we believe is a binary election between a, a, a pro-choice candidate or a pro-abortion candidate and a pro-life candidate, uh, we, we kind of feel like there's not much other choice we have. Um, my friend, uh, Scott Klusendorf, uh, ha has a metaphor that he says, look, you're going to, even if you have an inept fireman, you'd rather have your, your lame fireman over an arson, right? Who's going to set torch to the place, um, which I completely understand. At the same time, over time, uh, beyond a moment, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to either give the fireman that's not great, better training so he improves, or you're going to fire the fireman and get a better one um, over time. And so uh, we got to figure out what we do in the long term. And I'm coming to the conviction now and frankly, I think is supported by uh, the political science, is that it's really unproductive for any political issue to be a one-party issue. Why is that? Well, for substantive, meaningful, sustainable change uh, through legislation, you really need bipartisan support. Um, the opportunities for big issues to get pushed through, uh, certainly at the federal level by a single party, is really rare. Um, we see that infrequently. We see it with like uh, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, we see it with the 2017 um, tax reform uh, under President Trump. Uh, but those are those are like a decade apart. Um, so making progress on a legislative issue is really rare for one party uh, to get something pushed through. The uh, criminal justice reform package that, pre uh, that President Trump signed, that was years in the making and was done across bipartisan lines. Okay, can I, um, can I just ask, yeah. uh, are you saying that we need to be cultivating pro-life Democrats to run and be elected across the country? That's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. So, um, so I mean, I, I realize that it's, you know, you think about these things all the time. Sometimes we need um, it to be said that plainly. I'm not sure that everybody um, got that. I got sure. it. But yeah. that's what you're saying. Help now, you in the now, plane. <laughs> well, I'm just saying that there are going to be people who are going to push back and they're going to say there's no such thing as a pro-life Democrat. Now, you sure. and I both know that that's not true because we both know pro-life Democrats. Yeah. Um, and right. so... Part of, I think, our partisan challenge as pro-life people is that we our imaginations are not big enough to to right. say God could actually be cultivating uh, pro-life Democrats. And we want to see uh, those candidates replace the ones who are there now. We also need to better equip the, the pro-life Republicans who are currently serving. And we need to have a a broader understanding on the on the Republican side of things about what it means to be pro-life. I mean, the pro-life exactly. agenda has to get bigger than right. um, than just the uh, the case for the unborn, which is obviously yeah. critical to the conversation. I agree with whoever it was that wrote this week. You can't be pro-life if you're pro-abortion. Like, that, that is right. not consistent. But right. being uh, anti-abortion is also not a robust enough definition of what it means to be pro-life. 
Right. Exactly. All right. You got um, one more thing. You got you got one more thing that you can say in one minute in your vision for the future of the pro-life uh, politics. Well, well, you hit it. And, and and let me understand. Let me say it clearly. I understand that um, uh, invading the pro-life party, especially at the national level uh, with pro-life candidates, uh, is a long uphill battle. But I invading think the Democrat we, Party. <laughs> Democratic Party. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's good. You called them the pro-life um, party, we, but that's because you're casting a yeah, vision. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Um, we uh, with pro-life pro uh, candidates. Um, I, that's a long, uh, expensive battle, uh, but we need to start. Um, I think we've we've seen that our our, our expectations for short-term gains through one political party um, that day has ended. It's pretty clear that that's uh, not going to happen, and so we need to start building. Uh, imagine if say as early as the 80s, uh, we had been funding pro-life um, uh, Democrats in a way that was meaningful, um, that you had a, a significant portion. Uh, even six senators would make a difference, right? Um, but we decide instead to fund 15 different um, uh, also ran Republican presidential candidates in 2015 and 2016. Um, I think we can put our our, our money strategic uh, and our, our strategic ideas and our, our money uh, to better use uh, for a long term project. But it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of money. Um, and there's a lot more behind the story. But that's my conviction uh, that, that I hope folks will join. You guys can find uh, Matt online, MatthewTHawkins.com. You can also find him on Twitter at MTHawk. Thanks, man. We'll continue this conversation because we're in this for the long term. Have a great holiday weekend. Thank you. You too. We'll be right back. All right. Is it possible that a single poem in the 12th century actually ushered in modernity? I have no idea because... I don't know even what 12th century poets were writing about. But Dan DeWitt uh, has, uh, has unearthed, well, he didn't actually, I don't think he actually went and unearthed it, but he is pointing us to the discovery or the rediscovery of a 12th century poem that he's going to argue ushered in modernity. Uh, we're going to draw attention to a lot of evidence for the New Testament uh, in comparison to um, to other voices that speak into our lives. So Dan DeWitt's up next. We love to do this weekend worldview reader on Fridays with him to sort of tee us up for uh, thinking about God deeply over the weekend. So up next, Dan DeWitt with the weekend worldview reader. We'll be right back. When kids face the uncertainty of a world that's constantly in flux, they'll have one of two responses. Take control or give up. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If the things that mom and dad taught don't seem to fit in the surrounding culture, teens will often be confused and lost. At this crossroad of decision, they'll take one of two roads. First, a teen will take control. They try to control their destiny. The second path is to throw it all to the wind. They'll abandon mom and dad's values and adopt a skeptic mindset. This teen says... Whatever I do doesn't matter anyway. What path is your team taking right now? Be sure you're there to guide them in this powerful season of uncertainty. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org.
All right, joining me now, Dan DeWitt from Cedarville University, uh, and he has aggregated everything that we're going to talk about today on his website at theolatte.com. If you search there for the Weekend Worldview Reader, which is not hard to find, uh, and click on that, then you're going to have the links to everything that Dan and I are about to talk about. So, Dan, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks, Carmen. Great to be with you again. Hope you have so your coffee. I, I do, I do. So I can tell that you're um you're back to school. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Because um you've posted a lot at theolatte.com. And so I would just love to talk with you uh, about some of the things you have posted there. Um can we start with what I teased uh at the beginning of this segment, which is this 12th century poem. T- talk with us about this uh how a single source can change the world. That's the heading you've given it. Yeah, so this was, um, it's the material I um, relied upon for the post is from a Pulitzer Prize winning book from 20, um, or from, yeah, 2012. So from eight years ago, the author Stephen Greenblatt, and he argues that um, a discovery by an Italian scholar whose name I'll try and pronounce, um, Poggio Bracciolini, that Poggio discovered a poem in the 12th century, but the poem itself was actually um, from a poet from years ago, Lucretius, who died about 50 years before Jesus was born. Lucretius was kind of summarizing the philosophy known as Epicureanism, a philosophy that had been developed a a few hundred years before Jesus was born. And that poem, um, written, um, the title of the poem's On the Nature of Things, written, again, about 50 to 75 years before Jesus was born, was largely lost and forgotten. There are a few kind of scant references to it throughout the years, but when Poggio discovered this poem, it revived an entire philosophical movement, and Stephen Greenblatt argues that Poggio, this Italian guy who found the poem, is the midwife to modernity, um, because he rediscovered and reintroduced into the world a one-single poem that revolutionized so many things the way people see things. Now, really quickly, um, the poem describes an atheistic worldview that includes evolution, um, going all the way back to the time before Jesus, had influence on all sorts of people, including Herbert Spencer, um, who then subsequently had influence on Adolf Hitler. So this one poem had a ton of influence. Remember how Josiah um, rediscovers the Book of the Law? I'm thinking like mm, Second Kings... 22 grabbing here in my mind. Um, Okay. So, right. The rediscovery of the book of the law. Like there's this moment that um, you can't believe that something that contains so much truth has been lost for so long. And in this case, you know, the people of God had actually lost the word of God. They'd buried it in a closet, you know, and it, it, Mm -hmm. and, and that's so current. That is so current. Well, and I, I think it's it's interesting, too, because often the New Testament will be criticized for not having historical, um, proper historical citations, whatever, that it's not well attested, that the copies of the New Testament differ from each other. And you look at this one poem that was from centuries after it was originally written. In fact, Poggio, what he did is he sent it to his friend, Niccolo Nicolai, who is the inventor of the Italian script or the Italic script, rather, and he asked his friend to make a copy of it, and his friend made a copy of it and then lost the original. So we don't even have this one poem he discovered. We don't even have it 
anymore. And it was able to revive an entire philosophical movement. In comparison, the New Testament has thousands of ancient copies in Greek and in other languages. And it's a reminder sometimes that as people are skeptical of our faith, we need to turn the table around and say, hey, why don't you defend this entire, this poem that revolutionized philosophy and that Stephen Greenblatt calls as the mother to, or the midwife rather, to modernity. All right. I love that. Okay. So as I'm looking at this week's Weekend Worldview Reader, which we're going to invite people to turn to at theolatte.com, as I scroll down, um, one of the things that you have posted here is five reasons I believe the Bible. I'm going to invite you to give us the five reasons you believe the Bible, um, and you have three minutes. Okay. I'll, I'll try and make it as quick as I can. The first one is, is pretty big, and um, it, encum- it encapsulates the other one. So I'll just say it this way. Um, if someone watches the video, it's actually a lecture for my students that I recorded through Facebook Live and posted at my website as well. Um, regardless of how someone sees the world, maybe perhaps like the poem we were just discussing, Lucretia saw the, the world as existing as a material world that exists by and for itself, and that everything, including humans, have natural explanations. Well, that is a way of seeing the world that requires a faith commitment. You can't prove that to be true. Um, Atheism itself is built on a faith commitment that the material world is all that exists. Years ago, uh, several, probably five, six years ago, a, a philosopher named Crispin Sartwell published an article called My Irrational Atheism. And he's an atheist, he's a philosophy professor, but he admits that his way of seeing the world isn't based on science. It's actually based on a something similar to a religious person's commitment. So I believe the Bible is a part of an interlocking, integrated Christian way of seeing the world, that God exists and that he's revealed himself. So that's the biggest one. Flowing from that, um, the, I believe in the Bible because it's powerful. I've seen it change my life, other people's lives. Um, I believe in the Bible because Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus loved the Old Testament. Um, He quoted either in word or in principle from almost every book in the Old Testament, and Jesus commissioned the writing of the New Testament. So if if Jesus rose from the dead, we should take the book he loved and the book he commissioned seriously. And then finally, I believe the Bible because there's tons of evidence. There's more evidence for the Bible than there is for any other ancient writing, Um, and it's in a league of its own in terms of the evidence. But I want to state up front, it's not the evidence that brought me to faith, it's the power of this Word of God, and it's a part of an entire Christian worldview. That's why I believe the Bible, in short. So one of the reasons I ask you to do that, and I and ask you to do it quickly, is because I, I think, Dan, that there are people listening, including myself, who maybe we haven't thought through our short list of reasons why we believe the gospel, reasons we believe the Bible, reasons uh, for the hope that is in us. And if we haven't thought through it, and we haven't made a list, we're certainly not going to be able to uh, do what Scripture commands us to do, which is be ready to share it with somebody else. And so thank you for, um, thank you not only for writing it up or thinking about it and then writing it up, but then also thank you for articulating it with such brevity, because I think that's what we have to also be prepared to do. We have to be able to prepare, be prepared to speak the truth in love, with confidence, uh, with grace to others, and to do so succinctly in order that uh, the conversation can then move forward without us, you know, frankly, exhausting the listener. All right. You and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, 
Um, we've got some um, articles that you've got listed at uh, at the weekend on the Weekend Worldview Reader at theolate.com that I want to talk about. Dan DeWitt is with me from Cedarville University, and we'll be right back. Give me faith Continue my conversation with Dan DeWitt. You can find him at Cedarville University, or you can just find him at theolatte.com. That's like God and a cup of coffee, theolatte.com. <laughs> um, okay, so Dan, talk with us about meta narratives. Um, and I am recognizing that there there are many people today who do not believe there even are meta narratives or that we don't all share it. So talk with us about the power of meta narratives um, and then the distinctively Christian or biblical or gospel redemptive worldview. Yeah, the term meta narrative, you could just think about in terms of narrative, a story, an overarching story um, that explains life and the world we live in. And of course, there was a, a certain incredulity, a um, lack of confidence in, a disdain for overarching stories as it relates to the philosophy that's had a lot of influence of postmodernism. Postmodernism would essentially place the, the, the center of figuring out truth within the person or within a small community. And there's no big story, they would argue, um, that controls us or tells us who we are or how we should live, but rather it's something we construct together in community. Um, the truth is we all function in such a way that we believe that there is a way to make sense of everything. We're trying to make sense of it all. And often, if we will read carefully either the written word or listen to a song, or um, as I have an article to a Timothy, uh, link to a Timothy Paul Jones article, he talks about meta narratives and comics. Um, if we look carefully, if we observe what's being said and how people are thinking about the world, often we'll find that the most compelling way to understand the world looks very similar to way, the way the Bible describes the world. So we call something good or evil, that actually makes sense from a biblical worldview. Doesn't make sense from an atheistic worldview, doesn't make sense from an Eastern religious perspective, it makes sense from a Christian worldview. So yesterday, one of the things that I did yesterday afternoon was listen to uh, the conversation that uh, that Albert Moeller from um, from Southern Seminary had with an atheist um, who has written a book that is critical of critical theory. And mm -hmm. um, first of all, it's an excellent, excellent exploration of of the of what we are talking about, which is postmodernism. Um, but it's also really just fascinating to see how many points of agreement they have. And then at the end, when Moeller says, hey, let me just ask this honest question of you, just genuine curiosity, like, you know, what's your epistemology? Like, where where do you base your knowing and your sense of things are true and then your morality? And like, right, like where, like, honestly, you know, as an atheist and this guy's a mathematician and anyway, is is a fascinating conversation. And mm. I have to I have to say to you, you are. You are pricked that Mueller waits to the very end to mm -hmm. sort of point to the fact that the guy's worldview is completely different than his own, even though on this point of the criticisms uh, that we can bring to to the postmodernity modernity um, sort of outcome, which is our current situation related to critical theory, related to identity politics. I mean, just go down the list. It's all there. 
Um, it just anyway, it was fascinating. I rec- I commend that to you because it's a part of this yeah. conversation about meta narratives and then this distinctively Christian worldview where really the questions are answered. So I love that. All right, you and I also both took a look at um, something that you you have posted on the Weekend Worldview Reader. And that is um, something that the BBC produced on ancient Rome's sin city lost below the sea. <laughs> now, any time that, um, that uh, somebody in contemporary media is willing to identify sin and put it in a category, you know, that's going to be clickbait for me. So tell us about this. Yeah, so it's a really interesting video. It's maybe five, six minutes long. And you could see how this um, certain, this city that actually the second century Roman historian Tacitus um, makes reference to, because this is near the area where Nero um, attempted to have his own mother killed, I believe, is the historical reference. I'm not a historian, but if I remember my reading right. Um, so this is a, a city that's now underwater, but it's where famous um, people, where aristocrats would spend their time. And... Um, it's interesting for me because there's a reference as I looked it up this morning. It seems like the Apostle Paul visited near here. And so this uh, is not only something of interest historically, but also has some biblical references. And as I mentioned, Tacitus mentions this city that is in Rome and underwater. And Tacitus also mentions, if I could go back to an earlier point about the Christian faith, Tacitus mentions Jesus, the second century um, Roman historian mentions Jesus and that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. So to tie it all together with a nice bow, it's a nice video to watch, and it reminds us that the claims of the Bible are real events that happened in time and space. Even when you're watching the BBC, we're reminded that the Christian worldview is something that explains the world we live in as it relates to even the sin city of Italy that's now underwater. I I am always uh, curious when theological words and theological realities uh, find themselves in very secular media um, and, and journalism. And yeah. so the reference in, um, you know, in this to uh, Rome's Sin City or, you know, the ancient version of Las Vegas, like I'm just like, OK, so we're willing to call um, Sin Sin when when we think that it's um provocative and curious and almost celebrated and that that is a curiosity to me the celebration of sin um and the fact that it yeah. you know it it can be identified with um you know with spaces where you know people go to participate in things that are even in culture acknowledged to be sinful i just thought that that was um an interesting worldview point that that we could equip people with today on this all right you've got a lot of other stuff in the weekend worldview reader we have time to talk about one more which one do you want to do wow okay so the other one i would say <laughs> let's talk about would be um trevin wax's article love what's near i i do Good. a weekly kind of thing with students called that i call mere caffeination and I have people sending questions, so I'm going to be talking about this here in a little bit. One question I was asked about was, how do we love our local community when we're always focused on what's going on globally or nationally? And I think that Trevin gives us a great reminder that sometimes we could be really passionate about something that's way out there, and we're really passionate about abstract things that we can't change. What we're reluctant to do sometimes is to love the person we see next door. And so I would commend that article. I think it's a great reminder that God's called us to live 
and love the place we're at and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves as an evidence of our love for God. Okay, so we just talked with a pastor whose name is Adam Weber. He's in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. His church is called Embrace. This is off the top of my head. Um, but yeah. this is this is his subject matter area um, in his new book, which is called Love Has a Name. And he mm-hmm. actually, like, this is what he talks about. So um, if someone were asked down the road, you know, where in your life have you experienced transforming love? Where in your life, you know, has there been somebody who really— you know, changed life for you. And if your name is the name that they offer, then love has a name. Like that's the, that's really the premise of the book. So um, obviously we know as Christians, love has a name. His name is Jesus. But the question is, do other people in the culture, the people nearest to us, do they know that name, that love name by knowing us? Like are people actually experiencing the love of Jesus because they have their life has rubbed up against ours in close proximity? So um, Adam Weber might be an interesting conversation partner for you. Plus, he's just really fun. Yeah. I need to yeah, check out you the would, book. Yeah, you would like it. Love has a name. All right. Um, all right. We're, we're out of time, which is stunning. I love talking with you. Um, I'm glad school is back in session and you are back uh, online teeing up so much good content at theolatte.com. Thank you for the Weekend Worldview Reader and for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much, Carmen. Take care. Thanks, Dan. We'll be right back. All right. I don't know about you, but um, it I, I just love it that God has so many good people. And well, I mean, obviously, they're good people because God has made them so by redemption in Jesus Christ. But I got to tell you, I get jazzed when um, I have the opportunity to not only know of, but actually like be in conversation with people who are bringing the gospel to bear in significant ways in their own homes, in their own churches, in their own communities, in colleges and universities across the country, in places of local business. And so that's what each and every one of us is commissioned today to do. We are commissioned um, by Christ to be people who are advancing the gospel always and in all ways. So that's you. That's you. And it is a provocative calling. It's a challenging calling. Um, it's a it's a joyful calling. And it's a calling for which God has already equipped us in every way necessary. In every way necessary, God has already equipped us um, to accomplish the good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do today. So all we have to do is um, be confident in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit within us, walk by faith into the world that God so loves, uh, and recognize the divine appointments he has set. All right, we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.